So 26 years as a PJ, I basically qualified for these type of things. You know, oh, oh you're a paramedic. Because the corporate, you know, the civilian sector recognizes that I was a paramedic and I, I held a nationally registered EMTP credential. So that's what they recognize. Right. So they're like, well, you're qualified to be a paramedic. Oh, um, we think you're qualified to be um, maybe like a park ranger or something like this, you know. But they don't take into account all my years of strategic planning at the highest levels, you know, and, and strategic planning operations because they don't really know how to do that because we don't have those same titles. So those titles, everything gets lost in those titles. So that's a big disconnect. But by establishing and formalizing a relationship, these companies would have purview. They, they would have access to better understanding that. And we would be working with HR departments to fuse that. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is one of my jiu-jitsu teammates, Tony Negrone. After a highly decorated 26-year career in the Air Force, Tony has dedicated his post-military career to aiding both active duty veterans as well as those who have separated from the military through business ventures and charitable organizations. While on active duty, Tony served as a pararescueman and rose to the level of pararescue functional manager of Air Combat Command, overseeing policy, manpower, and readiness. His work as an operator with Joint Special Operations Command saw him overseeing some of those critical and strategic missions in our war on terror from 2000 to 2006. After leaving the military in 2015, Tony took over the SEI business. In leading SEI, Tony works directly with the Department of Defense in providing training to active duty special operations personnel through customized leadership, medical, tactical, and mountaineering courses. Tony is also a principal at Fusion Cell, a Wyndham, New Hampshire-based company whose mission is to assist transitioning veterans with job placement by matching their unique skill set and talents to the civilian workforce. Lastly, Tony serves on the board of directors of the Pararescue Foundation and helps lead their mission preserving and supporting the pararescue community. In this interview, we get into Tony's decision to join the Air Force and become a pararescueman, his career in the Air Force, his current work in aiding both active duty veterans and those who have transitioned out, and his thoughts on leadership and managing high-performance teams. And so, without further ado, my interview with Tony Negron. Tony, thanks for coming to the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, Chase. Thanks a lot for thanks for inviting me, man. Yeah. So let's start this out at the beginning. Uh, where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, predominantly. Uh, I'm a Midwest boy, so I grew up in uh, like Elkhart, Indiana. I was born in Niles, Michigan, but uh, you know I've rotated a lot back and forth between kind of that border right there of uh, Southern Michigan and Northern Indiana, and I've lived uh, in that area my whole life. Yep. Okay. Is that like? the corn fields is that like what people would think of in like indiana like just lots of corn fields and all that sort of stuff yeah amber shades of gray, uh, of gold yeah i think that was my <laughs> license plate for a long time and it, you're absolutely right i did actually tassel corn um okay 
a couple seasons, uh, you know, as a young guy, you know, they, they work you like a, a sweatshop, man. It's, uh, they, you get up early and you go late, but the money was really, is really good, you know, mm-hmm. and you take short little breaks. Uh, they work you from sun up till sundown, but, uh, but the money is nice, you know, for a young kid being able to go out and do that. And you know, I learned a lot, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. That's good. And so, so when did you first become interested in joining the military? Um, yeah, to be honest with you, um, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like that cliche or, you know, you think about, or you hear when people kind of go, you're not sure what you want to do, but you're sure of what you don't want to do. So I didn't want to stay, um, back in Indiana. I wasn't ready to go to college and I knew that I wanted to travel and kind of go out and see the world. And from talking to, I guess, friends, or maybe I just intrinsically knew it from, um, you know, advertisements about the military and stuff like that. Come join the military, uh, you know, travel, have your college paid for, the GI Bill. Uh, So through those mediums right there, I imagined I found out about it and I just decided I wanted to do it on my own. I didn't really have anybody as far as my family and the military to guide me on this. And I just went down uh, my senior year and I signed up and I came wow. back and I told my mom and actually my mom was excited about it. I grew up my, with a, a single parent, my mother, and uh, she thought it was a good, a good uh, future path to go down. So she encouraged me to do it when she found out I signed up and, and that's what I did. I guess that's how I got there, you know? Yeah. Wow. So it wasn't like, like this long history of the family being in the military. It was just, no, no, it wasn't. And it's funny because now I mentor guys today and I think you and I talked about it briefly, but you know, because I did end up doing subsequently 26 years in the military, the very first thing I tell folks who want to join the military, especially if they're going to join soft and they want to get into these really elite type of jobs, I tell them to find a mentor. You know, it's like the most yeah. important thing. And I didn't really have that. I, I had a great mentor in my mother, um, but not towards the military. You know, she didn't know anything about that. And uh, no, I just uh, rolled the dice and I, and I went in. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. So like why the Air Force and like why Air Force Special, special Operations? Like were you considering other, other branches? Yeah, I was. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. Uh, I actually went to join the Army. Um, I can't tell you today why I thought about the army, but, uh, I walked into the army recruiters office and with intentions to join the army. And, uh, and so at the time they had a policy about flat feet. And, uh, so they found out I had flat feet and he said, basically, uh, Hey, we can't take you right now in the army because there's a policy that, um, won't allow us to pick you up due to your flat feet. And I was really surprised by that. And as a matter of fact, I didn't really understand it because, you know, how could I understand it at the time? I didn't know anything about the army. And, but I remember having a conversation with him saying, Hey, you know, like, why is that a big deal? And he's like, well, he started to explain, you know, that, you know, you'll be putting a lot of time on the road and ruck marching and things like that. And, you know, your balance, because you're flat footed, you know, you're not going to have good balance. And, uh, and I, I remember going, well, I'm a wrestler, you know, I, I have great balance <laughs> and I'm an athlete and uh, it's never stopped me from anything, but I didn't know about the army, but uh, the bottom line is I couldn't get in. And so I just walked into the next office over and I talked to the air force recruiter and the air force recruiter said, yeah, we'll take you. I, we don't, I don't care about your flat feet. 
uh, <laughs> that was a long time ago, but that's exactly how it went down, you know? And so I joined the Air Force. Wow. Well, yeah. so they, they, they explained it to you, your flat feet would like cause you to be not balanced? Like that's- Well, th- no, at the time, that's what, kind of what he said. Now, what I know today, 26 years later and, and, and being in soft and, uh, um, and, and my medical background is, uh, you know, when obviously you don't have the arch support, so you don't have an arch in there. So it can put a lot of stress on, uh, your lower limbs and, you know, that can transfer all the way up your body. So, okay. uh, you know, you spend a lot of time ruck marching in the military. And if you, you know, like he was you know, representing the army. So maybe in his mind, he was like, Hey, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be doing some long marches. You're going to be spending time in, in the field and infantry and carrying heavy things. And it's just going to be a huge amount of stress without having the arch support in your feet. So uh, that's really what it was. And that was their policy. Okay. I don't, I'm not sure what their policy is today, or even if that's a consideration, but at the time, um, you know, it, it disqualified me from going in the army. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, I could see, I could see, you know, the logic, you know, how they get there. Um, it's probably antiquated today, you know, I, uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, cause I know we wave all kinds of stuff in the air force and I imagine the army and all the rest of the services these days, as they, as they try to aggressively recruit and get the right people they want, mm-hmm. you know, everything's waverable, but you know, when it's a new guy stepping in there off the streets, uh, you know, and, uh, and they probably weren't hurting for people at the time. So they could probably afford to be a little bit more picky, you know, on who they're taking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And so did you go in with the intention to become a pararescue man or did that? No, no. no. Uh, so I, I went in there and I said, Hey, I'm not sure exactly what I want to do, but you know, um, I like, I like sports. I, I I'm outdoorsy. I'm athletic. Um, I just like to do something that's fun and exciting. That's kind of somewhere in the wheelhouse of that type of stuff. And, um, so I initially became a cop. He made me a cop. Uh, so I was a security forces, um, for my first five years in the air force. And, uh, um, and I enjoyed it. I, matter of fact, I'm, I still have great friends that, uh, I'm still in touch with from those first couple tours of being a cop, but somewhere in the time of being a cop, you know, I found out about pararescue. I was over in uh, Misawa, Japan on my second tour as a cop. And, uh, you know, I kind of did the stuff, uh, you know, guarding the flight line and security. I worked the armory and uh, they stood up a pararescue unit over in Misawa, Japan for a couple years. It wasn't very long, but it was while I was there. And I met these, um, these pararescue men and I started hanging out with them. I kind of saw everything they were doing, the training they were doing. They were doing a lot of, uh, you know, winter warfare training. They were training out in the mountains, you know, living in snow caves, you know, <laughs> always working out. And, uh, and I was working out pretty aggressively then also. I just you know, was doing it from, my, from the AFSC I was in, which was uh, security police, uh, security forces today. And, um, yeah, just uh, I got interested in what they were doing. They're they showing me the books and all the traveling they were doing around the world, and um, and it just appealed to me. And um, I said, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cross train. I'm gonna try to do it. And at the time, the attrition rate was really high. And so, as uh, as one of the PJs or a couple of the PJs I was hanging out with, you know, they basically just 
probably got in my head a little bit and, and, and wanted to challenge me and they told me about the high washout rate and the attrition rate, which was right around a 90% or, uh, and they said, yeah, you know, I don't know if you can do it. Most people can't do it. And I took it as a challenge and, <laughs> and I, I, I did what's called pass test, you know, which is the first kind of phase one. And, and I got accepted to go and go down to Indoc and, and join pararescue. Okay. which took me down a whole nother path in yeah, my yeah. life. Yeah. And so like maybe just for the people listening, provide like a quick summary of the job of an, of a pararescue man, like what they do and what, what yeah, entails. So, so, it, so in a nutshell, you know, right now the umbrella term in the United States air force is, you know, AFSPEC war or air force special operations. Um, and so, you know, pararescues under, under that. And it's kind of like these um, airmen who kind of do you know, special operations force type of work on the ground. You know, you got combat controllers and TACP and pararescue men and, and special reconnaissance and combat rescue officers and uh, special tactics officers. And um, their job, depending on which, which one you get into, so I got into pararescue, but you might think a pararescue man is a, um, is, is, is a rescue expert. Uh, some folks, you know, uh, sway a little bit more towards the medical aspect of it, but I always thought of myself as a rescue expert that was responsible for, you know, answering the call of DOD, whatever DOD, the Department of Defense, deems as necessary for uh, contingency operations or needing some sort of rescue. So it could be precious cargo. They want you to go recover some sort of precious cargo type of thing okay. Um, okay. That, they, that they deem very important or a human. So, you know, we've always had a policy in the United States, uh, in our country, which I always thought was very admirable and very respectful, which is uh, we, we leave no soldier, sailor, airman, marine behind. We don't leave our people behind. And, and, uh, and, and that's why an all-volunteer force um, is, is pretty awesome, you know, to know that you could be in combat or in danger and harm's way, that somebody's always going to come get you. Uh, you know, it, that strikes a chord with our country and, uh, and it's very motivating to the people who have to go forward and, and put their life on the line. So, so, so that's what a PJ does. Anybody who's in harm's way or if they, we end up in sort of contingency operation where something happens, somebody's shot down behind enemy lines, and they need rescuing, then we'll go get them. And uh, we can do that unilaterally, um, which is, you know, means by ourselves as, as a PJ team. Or we can do that while we're attached to uh, different teams, any number of the different soft teams, special operation force elite teams that are out there. Okay. Uh, I've probably been attached to every single one of them. So yeah, that's pararescue. And you get all the skills that you would require, if you can imagine, to execute a rescue in any situation in anywhere around the world, you know, whether that's in mountains, whether that's in water, whether that's in pelagic open ocean or and all the tools and the skills that you would need to execute those duties yeah yeah i was just gonna gonna follow up with like what the the training must have been like um in order to become a you know air force pararescue para man i'm sure it's a lot of jumping out of planes and a bunch of other just tough training evolutions can you maybe just go go into some of that yeah, yeah. So, you know, once you get through NDOC, that first course, which is, you know, very physically and mentally demanding, uh, that's where we have our highest attrition. But after that, you know, you go into the pipeline for a couple of years. You know, we do have some washout 
in the pipeline, but you know, for the most part, if you make it past that first course, you 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 should theoretically make it through the rest of the pipeline, short of getting injured on a jump or a dive or something like that. Yeah, so you go to um, you know military free fall school, you go to airborne, you go to you know the army combat. I went to the army combat dive course. You know, we subsequently got our own dive school now, but back then I went to down to Key West for the Army Combat Dive Course, which is a, which is another very physically demanding um, course to get through. Uh, you know, just some long, long open open ocean swims at nighttime on a tack board and on a compass. You know, just uh, they put you underwater and it's you know, it's a buddy team and and it just seems like you're underwater for hours on a compass steering at a a little tiny, you know, light and a heading, you know, maybe two seven zero or whatever the heading is, and and you just go, and then, you know, it just seems like a, a couple hours later, you 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 start to get into shallower water, and you hopefully you pop up at the point you're supposed to be at, and hopefully when you come out of the water, because they make you don't come out of the water until the last minute, till you literally, you know, you're you're your nose is scraping in the dirt and at the last second you pop your head up on the, hopefully you're on the beach and there's an instructor standing in front of you going, okay, good job. You hit your point. Uh, hopefully you don't pop up in your, it's all dark and you have no idea where you are on some sort of uh, uh, beach somewhere, but yeah, uh, you go through um, survival schools, you know, which are, uh, you know, air force and army seer, you know, uh, the pararescue school where, they take you from not knowing anything about medicine all the way to up uh, to a nationally certified paramedic level yeah, EMTP. Uh, yeah, so okay. for two years you just hit you know air operations, tactics, smut, small unit tactics, shooting, you know survival in the field, and all the prerequisite schools you could possibly imagine that are in the wheelhouse of you know a soft operator. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, that, that's a, that's a lot. And so, so you're pararescuemen, are they like the, like the first call when someone gets like severely injured in, in the field, like whether it's army, Navy, you know, air force, et cetera, like you guys are typically the first ones on to call. Yeah. I mean, you know, all the respective services have their, you know, um, combat medics also, but all these combat medics, you know, inevitably end up through the same, we go through a lot of the same courses together. We end up in on the battlefield together and different components do kind of different things. So, so when you talk about a theater, you know, and we're talking about a, a theater of operation when it comes to like maybe Africa or Afghanistan or Iraq, as, as you might know it, um, it's not uncommon for uh, Air Force pararescue men to be pulling what's called um, theater CSAR. So we would be on alert, uh, you know, and if you can imagine small contingencies of, of airframes, whether that's on a helicopter or a C-130 in case you're doing some sort of jump operation in, you know, she so could be assigned to a C-130 or helicopter. But if you can imagine, so yeah, contingencies throughout the country with pararescue men and combat rescue officers and combat controllers on a team that's on standby should somebody need rescue. And yes, they, they, they would call up and, and say, basically, hey, uh, you know, launch the team. We need some help. We, we've taken on some critically injured folks or troops in contact. 
that would be a tick troops in contact and yeah you could fly right in to to pick up somebody who is in basically in dire straits but we also have guys who if they're not in that capacity in uh attached to an airframe on standby as a unilateral mission like i said you're you know you could be farming guys out to different teams and so they would be be assigned to a lot of those teams that are right on the cusp or right on the tip of the spear where they're definitely um, engaging in combat and they have a tendency to take um, fatalities and casualties at a higher number. And so we would be attached to those teams so we could take care, help them. Um, you know, you don't have to make the call right away because we we're attached right to them. Okay. Got it. That makes sense. So, so you get out of training and you complete it. Um, like now, now what happens and like, like how did your role evolve in the air force as you continued to move up the ranks? Yeah. So there's a couple different options you can do. I mean, obviously we, you know, we go through like you would imagine our civilian counterparts do, you know, there's a level of, Hey, now I'm a young guy. So in the military, we have a three level, five level, a seven level, a nine level, but those are the, um, the growth pattern you know, the growth profile of, you know, going from a new guy all the way to a, a very senior strategic planner, as you imagine, somebody might come into any company, start out as an intern, you learn the ropes, you're taking on more stuff and, and you, you know, you work way up to a middle manager and then maybe yeah. sooner or later, you know, you're quite possibly the CFO or a CEO of a company, you know, and uh, so that's the normal path of progression for any, any service member, so to speak, specifically the Air Force as we're discussing it. Uh, and you can and you can bounce around geographically to all kinds of different assignments throughout the world. You know, obviously we you know we have bases all over the world. And so once you graduate PJ school, you basically are farmed out. Uh, you know, um, to you know two or three guys might go to you know down to Florida. You know, another handful might go overseas. You know, onesies and twosies. You know. Um, or kind of a spackling just across uh, the country or around the world where they need to fill the numbers, you know, mm -hmm. so it's not uncommon, you know, there might be some bases that don't because of their numbers and where they are in the, uh, in the sequencing of experienced people, they might not need anybody. And so uh, it's not uncommon. One, one class might graduate and half the guys go to one base. Another class might graduate you know, and all the guys literally spread across the country or around the world. And it's onesies and twosies across every single assignment. Okay. Got it. And like, what about for you specifically? Like what, like, what was your, I guess, like final, like role, like yeah. in leadership position when you were in the air force? Yeah. So I, you know, I started out at, um, if you don't mind, I, so what I did is, uh, I went down to Cocoa beach was my first assignment. Patrick okay. Air Force Base, which is an awesome assignment, had a, a great time down there. That's kind of, that's a unit where, you know, obviously it's, it's Cocoa Beach. So it's down in Florida, it's on the water. So <laughs> geographically, depending what unit you get stationed with, it's not uncommon to get really good at those, at those skills. Right. So uh, though you're responsible for maintaining all your skills as a PJ, if you're geographically at a location where you're next to the ocean, you're going to get really good at water stuff. So, you know, the Cocoa Beach team was known for always being up, doing a lot of water jumps. You're spending a lot of time in the water. You're flying and doing low and slows in the water. 
And then, uh, so after that, I went to, um, I went over to England, you know, uh, spent some time in the UK, which was, which was an awesome, um, now that's an, what's called an AFSOC. You know, we have, um, different commands. We have air combat command, air force special operations command. We have joint special operations command and, um, we have all our PJs scattered across all those and also air education training command, which is AETC where our instructors kind of go. But so I went to England after that. And then I went over, uh, to, um, the 24th STS after that, which is our, our more elite unit. And, uh, I spent about six years at that assignment, which was the first six years of the war when 9-11 kicked off, um, right. which was which was an absolutely eye-opening experience. You know, I went really from a tactician to, you know, starting to grow as kind of like a, a future leader in the community. And then after that, I went to uh, Moody Air Force Base, um, had a great time there for about three years, uh, continued to grow as a leader. Um, I was a, a senior at the time. I picked up chief there. Then I went up to air combat command after that up at Langley to be the chief and the, uh, the what's called the uh, functional manager and um, stayed up there for about five years. Uh, and that's basically where I retired right out of Langley. Yeah. So, okay. Um, yeah, man, it, it seems really quick, you know, but, in between yeah, yeah. all, you know, those assignments right there, you know, uh, back when I was a cop, I spent time in Japan and Minot. And then there's just a whole slew of worldly assignments and TDYs and traveling all around the world kind of all summed up in, in those kind of assignments there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And so what were some of the key lessons you learned in the military about like leading and managing teams effectively and maybe like more specifically in situations that are maybe chaotic or stressful? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's, it was pretty awesome. You know, I, 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 when I cross trained over from being a cop and I went over to pararescue, you know, I was kind of the ranking guy. So I was basically thrust right into uh, the leadership role for two years. So two years in that pipeline, I was the team leader of kind of these guys who weren't really PJs yet. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, I look back on that time because it really forced me into trying to be, um, you know, I was, I was accountable for these guys. I was responsible for making sure my team was where I was supposed to be and when you were supposed to be there. And, and the nice thing that I always noticed about, you know, jobs like this, and, and I can say that um, having, you know, spent my whole career in them is that, they put a lot of responsibility on you. So, so as a team leader, they would just kind of go like, okay, this is where you're supposed to be next. Get down to the school, you know, like you're here in Albuquerque, but now you're going to Florida. This is what time you need to be there. This is what time the course starts. You know, they'd give you that and they'd be like, you were, you know, and then figure it out. And that's kind of how you had to do it. But they throw a lot of trust at you and they throw a lot of responsibility at you. They give you a lot of rope to hang yourself, but in the process, if you don't hang yourself, there's, there's a lot of maneuver room to, to really grow and, and, and learn as a leader. And, uh, and they're okay with that, which is what, what soft's kind of all about. And uh, um, they, they want people who can think on their own, you know, who can think outside the box. I know it's cliche to even say that, but uh, that, that's what they're assessing for folks, uh, you know, who 
if they are presented with a, a stressful situation, they, they can remain calm and knowing that, hey, I am in a stressful situation, but, but uh, you know, just overreacting and not dealing with the, with the process at hand, you know, it's not going to get you anywhere. So they kind of get you, they put you, and they put you in a lot of roles to um, kind of work through that, you know. Yeah. Um, and my kids always used to ask me, um, so here, my, this might, maybe this is a better example. My, my kids would ask, uh, Noah, who you know very well, yep. would go, well, aren't you ever scared, you know, on some of the ops you're doing? And I would go, well, yeah, I, I am scared. There's been many times that I've been scared about things we're doing, you know, so going down the fast rope in the middle of a compound where, you know, we may take heavily casu heavy casualties or somebody could walk out at any time with an RPG. Um, yeah, I was, I, I, there was many times where I was like, man, this is, this is going to be dicey, but it doesn't stop you. And I always tell my kids, I, I go, it doesn't stop you from doing what you need to do. You know, the guys behind me, you know, if I was in the middle of the stack, the guys in front of me are dependent on me to fill my position. And the guys behind me are depending on me to fill uh, my role and responsibilities as, as a, as a team member of, of the team success. And so, so I would tell my boys, I'm like, yeah, Hey, there, there's times where I was scared, but I go, you just don't let your fear rule you. You know, you can't, uh, it's okay to be scared. I've been with all kinds of guys who've been nervous about things, but, but you don't let it affect you getting the job done. You just press on, you know, and uh, um, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great example. And how have you, how have you been able to apply um, kind of these lessons and these experiences to your career now in business? Yeah. Well, yeah. So when you, it's funny because I was just chatting with somebody about this just, just the other day and uh, the units and the time that I spent in, in pararescue. So in my head, there's not anything I don't think I can do. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I really, I really kind of know the process. The process really is, and I tell my kids this all the time, you know, you, you can have, it's great to be in this country. You, you can have pretty much anything you want if you're willing to work for it. You got to work, you got to work hard. Um, but in my head, you know, in the military and, and traveling so much and networking so much and, and, and building meaningful and trusted relationships throughout my career and all the missions that we've done, you, you, you get to see so much and you get to be around so many wonderful and outstanding leaders. And uh, man, I've been around some really truly impressive people. And, um, and I always, man, I've had to learn, I've, I've learned so many great lessons about how, uh, you know, one of the units I was at, um, early on, I remember, um, we basically were out of, we were out of people. We were out of operators. We were out of PJs. And I remember my boss was sitting in a, in a meeting and we needed another PJ team. And, um, and at the, the general basically said, Hey, do you think we can get another team down there? And me knowing that we didn't have any more team. I just remember my boss going, Hey, uh, yeah, no problem. I think we could get two. We don't need to get two teams down there. And I walked out of that meeting going, Hey boss, we don't, we don't have any more guys. What are you talking about? There's, you know, we are out of Schlitz. And he goes, Hey, look, man, at this unit, um, we are like space. We are always expanding. We are always moving out. All right. And our job is to get it done. And no, it's not an option and it never will be an option. Uh, so whatever we have to do, if we have to RFF, which is request, uh, 
request for forces, which is basically uh, request more paperwork. And I remember I had to do a lot of paperwork for this, but <laughs> um, we got the we got the people we needed. And um, but it taught me a very good lesson, which is, uh, hey, no is not an option. It never will be an option. We are always moving out and uh, don't ever bring it up again. And I was a young guy when, when he kind of shared that with me. But so I guess where I was going with that is um, that's how it is in my head today. You know, I don't I don't think there's anything that uh, that I can't do or that people can't do if they put their mind to it and they're willing to work. That's the thing. You got to yeah. will. You got to be willing to work and put it in the hours. It's kind of like that ten thousand hours thing. Um, so it's absolutely helped me out in business tremendously. You know, I I, um, I probably break a lot of norms that I'm not supposed to do, but it's because I don't know better. Like you know, cold calls. Anyway, you know, um, you asked about SEI, and I know at some point if we ever want to discuss like fusion cell, but I'll cold call people and 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 uh, because I guess I don't know, I'm not supposed to do that, but. but <laughs> But I'm so tenacious on when it comes to something we want to do, or if I see the vision on it, and uh, and it seems like a dot that we want to connect, then then you know we'll reach out to people, and and sometimes um, those are the things you have to do to get things done. And uh, and I'm still on military time too, meaning that uh, you know I'll work later into the evening. Uh, I remember one time at, at here being in the civilian sector after being out, you know, and uh, I, I called somebody in the evening and uh, I remember one of the guys who was a civilian told me like, hey, Tone, uh, you know, at five o'clock I go home and I don't even want to pick up the phone, you know, and I picked it up for you, but just just understand, you know, you're not in the military anymore. So uh, like, let's try to keep those calls during the day. <laughs> but, you know, in my head, I'm still on military time. I'm always going to be like that. Man. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So. No, that's great. I love that. So, so how was your transition into like civilian life for you after all those years being in the military? Like, did you get, did you get a lot of help, like transition help from the government or military? Like, what was that whole transition experience like for you? Yeah. You know, the military does its, does its best to help out and every year it's getting better. It's getting better right now. And, uh, you know, I know you know, I've seen you on LinkedIn and, and, uh, every day I see different, you know, different, uh, businesses and, and .orgs popping up to help military veterans transition. And uh, so the military at the time when I went to transition, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't think it was bad, but again, how would I know, you know, because, you know, I'm leaving and I don't know anything about the civilian sector. And after being in 26 years, um, I don't even have anything to compare it to. I just know I'm getting out, you know, so they have uh, what are called uh, TAPS program, soldier life program for the army, and but but they're tra basically transition courses, and the and the military is trying to give you, you know, at least from the military perspective, because you're inside the machine, they're trying to give you the tools they think you're going to need to be successful as you transition out of the military. Now the military has no obligation to obviously find you a job, but you know they 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 do have some obligation. Or they feel like they have an obligation to, to at least give you some tools after you've done your time, you know, so, you know, you might, you know, that, that chalks up to be kind of like, Hey, resume writing, some networking. Um, they want to make sure your VA paperwork is in order, you know, let's get your finances in order. Right. And that, um, you know, probably even life coaching classes. Hey, you know, these are the things that, uh, the military did for you you know, we're not going to be there anymore. So start kind of changing that mindset. And that's the biggest thing I kind of try to share with people is you got to get your mindset right. When you transition out of 
the military to the civilian sector. The military pretty much does, if you think about it in the terms of, they try to do everything they possibly can for you so you can concentrate on the war, okay? So you can concentrate on being deployed downrange. And what I mean by that is, you know, um, you know, you have your dental, dental appointments, you have your uh, physical appointments once a year. You have all these different things where people are constantly reminding you, they're checking on you, you know, like, hey, uh, it's almost like you don't know anything about it, but we have what's called a mobility line. So before you can deploy downrange, you process through a uh, process mobility line. And, you know, you, that line might be 25 or 20 people deep. And it's all these different sections from the base. You know, is your will in order? Do, are your immunizations up to, up to snuff? Hey, did you get your uh, whatever paperwork? Is this in order? So they make sure before you deploy, all this is taken care of. But the military, if you step back one degree from that, the military is kind of doing this your whole career. So, so you do your job, but they want you to be able to concentrate on your job and ultimately concentrate on being a professional uh, warrior or professional person going to war. Right. So when you leave that, the biggest thing you got to realize is you don't have anybody checking on you anymore. So you got to change your mindset when you get out because everything they were doing for you, nobody's going to nobody's going to remind you to, to go to medical appointments. Now, you know, sometimes they, you know, like I, I've noticed lately that I am getting some things from the dental office, but for the most part, that's your responsibility. In the military, it is not getting missed at all. They're going to make sure that's taken care of. In the civilian sector, you're on your own. You know, nobody okay. really cares. If you, nobody really cares if you come or you don't come. You know, and if you if your if your wills aren't in order, your finances aren't in order, your insurance is not in order, all those life things aren't in order. It's on you. You know, so yeah. it's a mental it's a mental shift that you really have to do. Okay. Um, I don't know. Did I answer that question? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was that was great. That was helpful. And so, so you leave the Air Force and the military. Um, like, what's what's going through your head in terms of like like businesses and kind of starting that, getting income and starting that new life? Yeah. So, um, I would definitely say you know I'm probably in the the minority of folks who transition out. You know, I I was lucky enough to be presented with an opportunity to come in and buy a business, to own a business. Now, um, I've always been a strong advocate for my folks and, and my, you know, my people underneath me and my peers. And I've always tried to mentor guys that, Hey, look at always position yourself in the, the best position you can. So when an opportunity is presented, you're, you're able to capitalize on it. Okay. And, and I was able to do that. There was a, a company, um, SEI, you know, Sierra Echo India, uh, that I had been training to, or been going to for the better part of my career. The guy who owned it was a, was a friend, was a mentor of mine, you know, was, was a very well-respected pararescue man, very decorated uh, pararescue man um, by the name of Wayne Fisk. So he owned SEI and, um, and been running it for a long time. So he was a kind of a Vietnam legend. And, uh, so as I start to get up in my years there, you know, there was an opportunity where, you know, he was willing to sell the business, just kind of waiting for the right guy to come along. And, uh, and I basically offered, 
you know, I said, Hey, look at my timings, right? I've been in 26 years now or 24 years at the time. Um, I said, I, I, I would like to, I've always wanted to run a business. I know, I, you know, I knew my personality. I wasn't ready to, to get out and maybe just not do anything. I, I, I thought it would be exciting, um, to run a business. Now I don't have a, uh, a degree in business or a business background, but in my head, again, it goes back to that mentality you and I were talking about, which in my head, you know, I love being operations superintendent. I love being a chief, you know, so I was responsible for an organization. I was responsible for handing the fund, you know, handling the, the money uh, of the organization for managing people, for inspiring people, for handling logistics, basically everything the day in and day out, um, operations of an organization. So in my head, I'm like, I should be able to run a business. And, and that's what I did. I basically uh, offered to buy the business. Uh, we did the transaction. And so I stepped out and the very next day I started running SEI as, as the owner. Wow. <laughs> that quickly. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I didn't even, I didn't even take it. You know, I might've got out of the air force on Friday and on Monday I'm running SEI. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, that's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and so maybe just for, for everyone listening, provide a quick summary of what SEI does. Yeah. So SEI basically is, um, it's, uh, Sierra echo India, but basically that whole S right there stands for special tactics, operator, advanced life support. So that's one course and SEI was okay. built around that, that one course, which is a combat medical course for soft operators. Mm-hmm. And then the E is for, uh, et cetera. And then the I is Institute. So Stoles, et cetera, Institute. But basically what it is, is, you know, we train, um, elite soft teams or soft teams around the world, um, for, you know, the future battlefield tomorrow, you know? Uh, so we're training today's war fighters for, and preparing them for fighting tomorrow's war, you know, and everything shoot, move and communicate. And, uh, and recently we've been really growing in the, uh, the leadership department, you know, okay. cause I really, I really wanted to grow the leadership, the leadership stuff. So we're growing a leadership Academy within SEI. So, okay. yeah. Okay. What are so some it's, of the, Oh, okay, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I yeah. Was I was going to say, it. cause you're probably about the, you're, I think you were just teeing it up right now, but you know, so it's uh, all kinds of medical courses, mm-hmm. um, a mountaineering contingents, uh, a tactical contingent, and then uh, a leadership. So underneath those kind of uh, four pillars, there's just all kinds of courses. Okay. But basically, in a nutshell, what we do is, you know, soft teams will call us up and they'll give us the five W's, you know, the who, what, where, when, and why. And, um, and we'll facilitate it, you know, very customer tailored oriented uh, type of business. We'll put it together for them. They don't have to do anything other than to give us the five W's and um, some marching orders and, and we'll put together a great course for them. Oh, cool. Interesting. So let's say like, I don't know if this is theoretically how it works, but like a, a SEAL team gives you a call and they're going to be deployed to some mountainous region in the world. They'll yep. call you up and you'll design a course for them. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. Like, so, uh, those call up and go, Hey, you know, we'd like to come up in three weeks. You know, we got, um, we got nine days. We want to do some, some advanced mountaineering stuff, you know, and then 
we'll, you know, I'll sit down with them or a team, I'll, I'll sign a team leader to sit down with them and they'll be like, okay, you know, what, what do you, what kind of stuff, what objectives you guys want? You know, and they're like, hey, we want to do this. We want to come up in the winter. We want to, we want to do an overnight. You know, we want to stay in a snow cave and then we want to do some lead climbing. We want to do one day of ice climbing. And then maybe we want to do an overland on snowmobiles and we'll put the whole thing together for them. And uh, yeah, that's exactly what we do. Just like that. Okay. Interesting. Well, I mean, makes... we got courses like that scheduled right now that, that the guys are in town. You know? Oh, cool. Okay. Very cool. What makes SEI trainings unique compared to maybe some of the other special ops training courses out there? I think, not I think, I know. We're, we're, very, we're very customer, you know, oriented, you know, and uh, everything's tailorable. Um, you know, I spent 26 years in, in that community, so I know the community, at least my community, very well. But I also spent a lot of time working with the other uh, soft teams that we were, you know, that I was integrated with. And so I have a, a huge contingent of, of network in those. We spend a lot of time to truly make sure we understand what those guys want. And, um, and when they come in town, you know, not to divulge everything, but, you know, we, th these, are, these are big boy courses, so we, we treat them very well. You know, yeah. everything is, everything's high end. Um, we take good care of them. I don't want them to have to, uh, you know, I, I want them to come in town, have a good time, you know, or if we have to go to them, I want them to have a, a, a good time, not think about anything, um, relax and just kind of do the training they came into town to do. Um, and then I, we throw in a lot of other stuff that they didn't ask for, but, uh, but I know they appreciate without yeah. going, going into all the details. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. That's cool. I noticed uh, our jujitsu professor, uh, Professor Kevin, is part of the instructional instructor team at ACI. Yeah. So does he yeah. help like some special ops personnel with like self defense and jujitsu? He does. Okay. Yeah, as you know, as you know, Kevin Landry, you and I both have the utmost respect for him. He's he's a, he's an animal, and uh, and a very well respected tactician uh, in jujitsu and. Uh, and I got to tell you, when I separated from um, the military and coming up, coming out, I really, I really enjoy, you know, it's very, it's very uh, tribal, you know, amongst the teams. It was with pararescue. It is with the SEALs. Uh, these are very tribal organizations and there's a lot of tradition, a lot of heritage, uh, a lot of, uh, it's a very tight community. And I like, I like, I really enjoy the jujitsu community that we have, you know, because they remind me of what I left. You know, they're, you know, you know, some of the guys you and I roll with, but they're, they're warriors, you know, and Kevin's a warrior. And, oh, yeah. uh, and uh, so I asked him, you know, if he, if he would be willing to, when we have teams come in town or if an opportunity exists or presented itself where, you know, he might go on the road to, um, you know, share some of his experience as, you know, because he's at such a high level, uh, you know, combatives, you know, a lot of guys did combatives in the military, especially with amongst these teams. It's not uncommon. Jiu-Jitsu obviously was made very big by the Gracies. And uh, so all the, uh, a lot of the teams are very familiar with Jiu-Jitsu um, and somebody of his caliber is an asset. And so, 
Yeah. So when the guys come in, I, I take them by Kevin's place and, and they go down there. So if they're in town to go shoot down at maybe six hour Academy or wherever we're doing shooting right. in a local area or <laughs> right. doing something, um, you know, I put them across the street and then they can go roll and, and Kevin, you know, he'll kind of do uh, some private, you know, private sessions with them, you know? Okay. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. What's so like, what's the mission of SEI and like, how do you see the organization evolving and growing over the years in the coming years? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny, we're kind of at this, um, you know, last year was really, really a good year for SEI and it's gotten better every year, but last year is a year I consider like a, you know, a tipping point. And so, you know, I've had to bring on more folks to kind of help me, you know, run SEI. And initially it was just kind of me. I was literally doing everything from, you know, owning the business, the CEO or the president of the company, all the way to, you know, I'm doing all the logistics, I'm taking payments and, but that's kind of, you know, what you do and um, to now the capacity, I just can't, I can't handle that anymore, especially with diffusion cell and the other stuff. But uh, right. so it's continuing to grow. We're at, we're at a tipping point and uh, the leadership Academy is really starting to open up and expanding. And uh, um, I knew that was something that uh, my community and now I'm seeing that a lot of other communities, you know, the operator spends a lot of time in the shoot, move and communicate in the terminal area, which is absolutely what he should do because you want to make sure those skills are sharp. But just because you're a great operator doesn't mean you're a great leader, you know, and, uh, and you got to put time in that area as much, if not more sometimes in, in developing those skills of being a good inspirational leader or a manager of people. Um, and so I know my community was, uh, we were weak in those areas and, uh, that's why I wanted to start the leadership stuff, the Academy, SEI Academy or pro, excuse me, pro dev Academy. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where we're growing. You know, we're growing definitely in that area. And, um, but all the other, those other three legs that I told you, these other three wings have picked up uh, additional legs and they're, they're expanding also. So we're just going to continue to ride it and keep, uh, uh, you know, I like to always stay on the cutting edge of things. I like technology. So, um, you know, we'll continue to always be looking at that and how we can leverage technology to help train the warfighter. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, let's get into let's get into Fusion Cell now. Then, like, so talk to me about how it, you got the inspiration to start it and and what it is and and all of that. Yeah. So so Fusion Cell. Yeah, I think you initially were. You know, you kind of asked like, how did that spiral out? Like, what, how did I get to Fusion Cell from SEI? So so this is, this is exactly how I got to Fusion Cell. Like my intent was SEI, I'm busy with SEI, I'm busy with the Pararescue Foundation. That, that was enough, you know, I wasn't looking to start a Fusion Cell thing. So this is, this is the path of progression. This is how that happened. Because my involvement with the, with the soft community, specifically my community, and the Pararescue Foundation, where I'm a board of directors for the Pararescue Foundation, and now I've been out, you know, a year now I've been out five years guys were constantly calling me going hey I'm getting ready to get out I'm separating or hey by the way tone I just got out Friday you know like you know you know anything about jobs you know what can I do or you know I'm trying to find a job and this and that so in the early in the early days before fusion cell I was kind of doing what any what any 
guy coming from my background and my connections and the soft community was doing, which is contracting. You know, there's a lot of contracting overseas and, and a lot of my friends were doing that. Okay. And so I was through those relationships and that network, I was kind of pushing guys overseas. And a lot of my friends were getting out and kind of going back overseas. So they get out after 20 plus years, 26 plus years after doing soft work, special operations force elite type of work, living through all that, the rigors and the demanding lifestyle and, and, and the stressors that put on a marriage. And then they get out, they lose the infrastructure, but the money's really good. And they go right back over there and continue to do that. And uh, so a right. bunch of my friends right. got hurt. So a bunch of my friends got hurt, shot, even killed. And um, so the icing on the cake was a guy who I met up uh, here. I won't say his name, but um, he was um, a really good friend of mine. I deployed with him, boat crew leader on one of the teams I was with. He was a SEAL. And uh, so he, I got up to the SEI. I'm running SEI. I found out he was doing some work here. He got me into opening. He opened some doors that with the, with Six Hour and some other places. And, um, and basically he went and did a contracting gig, you know, and I said, Hey, look, when you get back, let's do some stuff together. He went and did a contracting gig and he got his uh, legs blown off, unfortunately. Um, and this is a guy who'd done 26 years, elite operator, very well respected, just a great dude, great personality, heavy hitter. And, um, so that got me thinking like, you know what, I am going to try to try to try to find another path, another venue, other areas where we can push our type of guys other than right overseas and contracting stuff. Not to say I wasn't going to push guys overseas because some guys will continue. They're always going to want to do the contracting stuff. It's just the way it is. Maybe some of the younger guys, maybe they're not married yet. The money's really good. You know, the money's good because it's dangerous, you know, and, but some of those guys may not want to do that, especially after they've, you know, they still got some kids, they, they've done their 20 years, they're a little bit older now, they're more at the strategic levels. Um, so Fusion Cell was a startup from that to try to go out and network with corporate America and companies specifically here in New England saying, hey, look it, I got some, I got access to some really good soft operators. They have tremendous uh, leadership skills, managerial skills, you know, they're workhorses. You should be so lucky if they decide they want to come into your company and they passionately want to be with you, they're going to exponentially grow. You're going to be like very impressed by them. You know, no matter where you start them out at, they're not going to stay there. They, and um, so that's, that's what it was. That's, um, and that's how Fusion Cell started. I met this guy by the name of uh, Jack Heath, who was an iHeart radio talk show host up here and he was a strong uh, uh, veteran advocate and supporter of veterans so him and I got together because everybody said he got to meet this guy Jack Heath and if you went back through you know if you were to go google him and look him up you'd see that he's been doing this for a while he's always been a staunch supporter of the military and of our vets so him and I got together and our first meeting was to go into one of the local um, you know the one of the local New England companies here and uh, which we got some, you know, I didn't even know it until I got up to New Hampshire, some of the big companies that were up here, you know, Sig Sauer, Wilcox, BAE, TurboCam, you know, oh, yeah. just uh, really big companies. And so him and I, that was our first thing. We basically walked in there and said, hey, look, we got access to 
these type of folks, what do you think about giving them a chance? And, uh, and everybody we ran across said, hey, look, at, we can absolutely do that. We, we want to do that, you know, but uh, they got to be qualified. And we weren't looking for handouts. You know, I'm not looking for handouts at all. What I wanted to give them was qualified veterans. But what I wanted them to do was like, hey, look, at, if you got two people, you know, and, and uh, because I'm, rep, I'm, I'm advocating for veterans here. If you got two people and they're both qualified, hey, why not, why not go with the veteran? Why? Because he's served our country. You know, he, he's allowing, you know, all, all these businesses and the freedom we have within our, this great democracy and this great country. Um, it's built on the back of, you know, having a strong military. And, and most of them, matter of fact, I didn't, I didn't meet anybody who didn't disagree, you know, that disagreed with that. They absolutely said, hey, if they're qualified and we could choose one of them, then, I, hey, I'm willing to give a veteran a chance. Absolutely. Wow. That's awesome. So what's behind the name Fusion Cell? Like, how'd you, yeah. how'd you come up with a name? Did, oh, yeah. You didn't research it, did you? So you know where Fusion? So Fusion Cell was... Uh, in the early days of the war, um, if you go and you Google this and look at this, you will find that, you know, General McChrystal at the time, he stood up Fusion Cell. And really what it is in a nutshell, um, you know, he wanted to uh, basically flatten the organization while they were, you know, trying to execute their operations and, and kind of going and um, doing the jobs they needed to do for mission success. The, the problem, what he was running into and what the team was running into was um, everything compartmentalized and different authorities reporting to different type of people. And it was taking a long time to filter all the information down. So basically what he wanted to do was, uh, you know, flatten that organization and put the right people with the authorities to make real time decisions in one room, thus the fusion cell. And that's what he did. Oh, and I so. So that, that time-sensitive information could be leveraged in real time on what it needed to do so we could quickly, um, you know, um, adjust and, and, and complete and go after uh, the folks we needed to go after and be able to complete those missions with a higher success rate. So, okay. so that's, where, that's where the name Fusion Cell comes from. I always liked the name. I always thought the name and then the process of – you know, hey, um, rely on your people, give them the authorities, flatten the organization so we don't have to go through all these multiple levels of filters. Um, um, I always thought that was a great idea. And so in my head, I always wanted to use that name somewhere, you know, because remember what we were talking about, always thinking about business. I always knew that I'd try to, you know, if nobody ever had that name, I'd use it somewhere down the road. And and if you think about it, what we're trying to do when we try to get veterans out of the military, not only transitioned, but ultimately to get them jobs, because that's what Fusion Cell does. It's not a transition company. It's a get you a job company. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of other companies and dot orgs out there that are, that are going, that are doing great transition work. And they've already been doing that for a long time. So we're, we're not in the transition business, mm -hmm. but everybody just lumps that to all together. They just think of transition. No, we're in there. We're the other part, you know, so we've leveraged or we're, we've, um, we're working with some of the most uh, recognized, the best companies out there that I've vetted, that we vetted, like the Honor Foundation, you know, and, um, you know, Home Base. They've been doing this for a long time and they're experts at it. 
We've checked them out. I've checked them out. They're very well respected. We let them help with transition stuff because that's what they do. And then they hand off to us and go, now let's find them a job. Right. You know, because that's a completely different. So that's kind of what Fusion Cell is doing is the finding the job part. Right. Finding them a job, finding them a career. Yeah. 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 What are like specifically some of the services that you offer that help veterans um, more easily or faster get into the workforce? Yeah. So, you know, one that comes right to mind is, you know, I didn't have SkillsBridge. So now they have SkillsBridge, you know, in the military, which basically, you know, we're, we're trying to get the word out there and Fusion Cells done a, a bunch of SkillsBridge now. We got the system down on SkillsBridge, but basically what it is, is your last, um, that last year you're in the military, you know, you're starting to kind of get in that mindset and that mentality of, um, hey, I'm starting to transition. And, uh, you know, you want to hit those TAPS courses. You want to hit those uh, Soldier for Life programs. But there's also a great opportunity now that is unprecedented. It's one of the best programs that the DOD has come up with for the military veteran. And that is to still be on status in the military, still be on pay, but basically to go and intern with a company from anywhere from, you know, 30 to 60, you know, uh, six months out, 30 days to six months out and intern with the company with the hopes that that company, once they see you, will turn around and hire you once you separate. But that is a phenomenal program. And uh, so, you know, we always try to educate uh, SEI or excuse me, uh, Fusion Cell's done a great job of helping companies get skills bridge you know, get, get them spun up on SkillsBridge and, and helping them through the process. Uh, we've done that with multiple companies now. We've brought on um, a, a few, man, our last three or four hires at Fusion Cell have been through the SkillsBridge process. So we bring them under the SkillsBridge. They stay with us. They work. We get to see them, even though we already know they're going to have great work ethic, you know, because they're veterans, their core values you know, uh, you can't argue with that. That's, that's one thing. That's a common theme through all veterans. It's that, hey, no matter where you come from, your walks of life, whether you're from Minot, North Dakota, or, you know, way up in Maine or way down in Southern California, you know, you go right into the military. They don't care who you are, where you came from, whether you're affluent or, or you're just, uh, you know, you come from trash. They put you all together they wipe the slate clean and say, these are our values. These are our values, our morals, and our ethics. Okay. These are, these are now going to become your values, morals, and ethics. And guess what? They're really good values, morals, and ethics. And uh, so right. that's, you know, that's some great thing you get when you get a veteran is to have, you already know you're getting that because it's instilled um, and you can't argue with them. Nobody could, nobody, you wouldn't find anybody out there who could ever argue with the values that the military gives their veterans. And uh, uh, the trades, the skills, you can teach a lot of that. If you have good people, you can teach that stuff, you know, through internship programs, you know, you know how it is, You're, you know, you go into corporate, you can teach those skills. What you can't teach is the character, some of these values, these morals, these ethics, how they were brought up and emotional intelligence, you know, being emotionally, you know, uh, socially savvy and um but yep. you get that you know with a lot of veterans uh, as as they as they uh, matriculate through the system and around the world you know the um so the skills bridge you know that's that's a great thing that you know the fusion cells do one you know we help the folks with that but uh the one thing that i'm really trying to push with fusion cell that uh that i feel very strongly about is is 
edging, educating our veterans early on and establishing a rapport and a relationship with Fusion Cell and a veteran early on. So while they're on the front lines and they're serving um, as a, in a professional capacity of, in the war zone, you know, we can help them and be mentoring them Wow, because they don't understand, you know, the longer they stay in, they become, you know, part of the institution. They don't know what they don't know about the civilian sector. So, you know, partnering or pairing with a mentor like Fusion Cell while you're in, and all we're doing is checking in on you. Hey, how you doing? Hey, you're doing another right. enlistment. Okay. You know, hey, so you always told me you wanted to go back to Indiana. Are you still thinking about that? How you doing on your degree? You know, and uh, uh, maybe you're interested in cybersecurity. Hey, I'm one year out. I'm two years out. I definitely want to get out. I'm interested in cybersecurity. Oh, that's good to know. Might I recommend you knock out these four certificates? This one's 13 weeks long. This one's eight weeks long. You know, that type of stuff, you can't jump, you, you know, you, you can't do that at the last minute. And so yeah. while they're serving, while the veterans are serving on the, um, on the front lines, you know, let a company like, uh, you know, Fusion Cell help you plan you know, your exit strategy, but do it strategically way out and not, not waiting till the last minute. So, you know, if there's companies you're interested in, you know, or a hometown you want to go back to, you know, let us help you negotiate that. Uh, you know, um, let us, let us build the relationships maybe with the company you're trying to go to, you know, kind of massage that. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. So like, what's your ultimate vision for Fusion Cell? So my ultimate vision for Fusion Cell is, is to, you know, kind of, you know, I don't know if we have to be the one-stop shop, but I want to be, I want us to be, and our team wants us to be the, one of the most respected um, organizations out there that all veterans know about and all the companies know about that it's, that, that they trust. So you know, when, when a company gets a resume with a fusion cell stamp on it, like it's got a fusion cell stamp on it and it comes across their desk, like that doesn't go into, you know, the pile over here that's got 765 resumes on it. Maybe it right. goes into a different pile. Maybe, maybe, it, so it goes into the pile where, you know, like people who are already in that organization that are vouching for friends, they want to get into that organization goes into that pile you know, and that we're yeah. trusted and respected and we're trusted by the companies that we serve, you know, the corporate American companies that we serve, but also trusted by the veteran, you know, and that, and that people know, because I, I want, I want the veterans to know early on in their careers, because you don't know if a veteran's going to do, um, you know, four years, six years, eight years, or 26 years. Okay. We don't know. And so if you don't know, you always have to be preparing for the, 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 the lowest kind of the lowest common denominator or the least quickest path, you know, which is like, Hey, I, I think I'm going to do four. Oh, I'm definitely doing four years, but I might do eight. Okay. Well don't plan for the eight. You need to be planning now for the four years because that's one assignment, you know, in the air force, that's, that's basically one assignment. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're starting to get sent paperwork going. Are you re-enlisting? Are you re-enlisting? Are you getting out? Okay. So, I want them to know um, right up front when they join the military. And some people might think, wow, that's, wow, that's, that's, man, that's crazy. Well, it's not crazy in my head. Mm -hmm. Right. When you join the military, 
you're established in a relationship with a company like this so they can better prepare you and they can strategically help you navigate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, that's, that's great. Just helping them be more, more prepared for just the future and life outside the military. I think that's great. Yeah. And let me, let me add one other thing, Chase. So, you know, I was thinking about this and so, so my vision is I, I, I foresee as the military grows or uh, excuse me, as, as, as we start to move down the road here, I, I, I see the military, they're always continuing to try to do the best for their people. Okay. And like I was saying about the transition stuff, they're, they're always adding stuff and they're trying to update the transition process, you know, and, um, and I think eventually it's even going to go a little bit further. You know, the military doesn't have an obligation right now, but I could see them going, Hey, look at, we need to strategize with a company, um, to help these airmen, soldiers, sailors, Marines, these veterans find jobs because we know that, Hey, look at, if we, if we take them from cradle to grave, you know, we're taking care of them from the time they enter. And if a guy gets us 30 years or a woman gets us 30 years, this veteran gives us 30 years. We want to get them a job. So we're not just, we're not leaving, leaving them to flounder, you know, flounder there and then try to, but we take them from cradle to grave. Like, and if we do that, you know, we get them a job or we we've done our best or we've done as the best we pot, the best we can for now until we hit those tipping points, you know, it's always an evolutionary type of thing, but Hey, we helped them get into that company. Now they're in Facebook. Now they're in TurboCam. Now they're in this company over here. We have an advocate in there that's speaking positively about the military. The military, did, they did great by me. You know, they, mm -hmm. I came in as an airman. I came in as a, as a private. They, they, it, at the very end of 20 years, they actually even got me a job. So, so you get this advocate, you know, advocate in there. And, um, and so what I see is, that, you know, and this may be a crude analogy, but think about it like this, you know, when you talk about the development of Fusion Center, where I'd like to see it go is I'd like to see a relationship between the DOD. If you imagine a ladder, you know, with a, a ladder with the rungs, you know, um, on one side, you have the Department of De uh, the DOD, the Department of Defense, but it's the military. And so that one side of the ladder, you know, that shows your timeline. You know, it's from zero all the way up to 30 year career. You know, a guy might do four years, he might do eight years, he might do 20 years, he might even do 30 years. And then also along that timeline, which is that, you know, we'll call it the right, the right side of the ladder, um, also is all those different jobs that are in there. Whether, you know, that's an MOS, you know, AFSC or rate, whatever service you're in, it doesn't really matter, but it's the different jobs you're in, okay? And then on the other side, making the other uh, side of the ladder, you have the civilian workforce or, or corporate America. But I have, you have all this civilian. And the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because, you know, there's this disconnect between the two. You know, yeah. A disconnect, you know? And so you have these relationships. But what I want it to be is like, because the military has been around a long time. So these relationships the military, they have relationships with Boeing and, and people who, you know, are big contractors with the military. But what we don't have is a formalized relationship on how to offload guys and, and gals uh, who leave the military into these companies that we have relationships with you know, formalized relationships. So, so take that first rung and all these rungs represent 
the, the offshoots that you might offshoot out of the military. Hey, I did four years. Boom. I got out. I'm down at the slower rung. So I, you know, I came in, Hey, I finished off my degree. I'm a young tactician, you know, but that first off rung goes into some, some job over here that we have a formalized relationship in these companies. So let's say, let's say we take, I don't know, a company like maybe BAE for instance. Okay. They're big enough. So if you take a really big company, they could take on folks at the tactical level, you know, somebody who might offshoot at the four-year mark, all the way up to a general officer who could be a, a strategic person in a company like that. Because right. they have factory people, they have logisticians, they have IT people, they're, they're a big giant company. So these offshoots, and now you take somebody at eight years or, or 20 years, and, and if, you, if you formalize the relationships, these corporate companies that would wanna be a part of this process, they've been given the purview and they have a better understanding of what are these AFSCs? What do they mean? What are these jobs that the, hey, what's a security police type of guy do? And if they have a better understanding of that, theoretically, you could almost go, hey, look it, I wanna serve my country. I wanna join the military because it's the right thing to do. You know, my, my family did it. And I have this huge heritage and tradition of, the mili of, of my family legacy joining the military. But wouldn't it be nice to go while you're also serving, you're kind of almost knowing what jobs you could qualify for at those different rungs, those different offshoots along the road. Hey, look, man, I'm going to go in for eight years and I know that, hey, look, there's, there's these companies that have a relationship with the military already established and I'm going to, they're always taking IT people. I'm going to go into IT. I'm going to go into Intel. I'm going to go into cybersecurity. Hey, I want to be a logistician. And, you know, and, and so it's a relationship, it's an institution that's been formed and we're just, we're serving our country. We're serving to defend the nation and our country and, uh, and the, and the world, as far as I'm concerned, you know, we, we, we shore up much of the security and safety for humanity with, with our country. Um, but then you also can, you know, Hey, look at, I'm going to do eight years and then I'm going to go right into cybersecurity with one of these companies that they have a relationship with. And uh, so that's my vision. I know that I know that was a lot. Yeah. Did, did I say it in a way you understand it, or do I need to do I need to extrapolate on it more? I think so. And and you can and uh I guess let me take a, a crack at it. So let's go with the Boeing example. Um, you establish the relationship with them. It goes on for over the years, and then someone who became a senior functional manager in the Air Force, for example, wants to work at Boeing. Now they have a better. Now Boeing has a better understanding of what that person's role is and how that would be able to translate over to a role at Boeing in kind of more of a like strategic level position. That's right. Ab absolutely. Yeah, you're mm -hmm. absolutely right. And, um, you know, and just to kind of talk a little bit more about that disconnect. So, you know, when you're in corporate America and you, you spent eight years at Facebook or three years at Uber, it's very easy to jump over to Wayfair because they understand what you are. Like they understand, hey, hey, I was a CFO here. Oh, that's great, okay. How about coming over here to be our CFO over here? Or, you know, I went, to, I went from uh, this company to Fitbit. They understand all that. But when you separate from the military, you know, when I, when I ran, you know, um, when I took my job, my AFSC or my MOS, and I plugged it into, you know, we have like a little filter 
as we go to, you know, we, we transition out of the military, we, we transition out of TAPS. And I ran my, um, my job through the gonculator there and it spits out like, hey, this is what you qualify for in the civilian sector. So 26 years as a PJ, I basically qualified for these type of things, you know, oh, oh you're a paramedic. Because the corporate, you know, the civilian sector recognizes that I was a paramedic and I, I held a nationally registered EMTP credential. So that's what they recognize. Right. So they're like, well, you're qualified to be a paramedic. Oh, um, we think you're qualified to be um, maybe like a park ranger or something like this, you know, but they don't take into account all my years of strategic planning at the highest levels, you know, and, and strategic planning operations, because they don't really know how to do that because we don't have those same titles. So those titles, everything gets lost in those titles. So that's a big disconnect. But by establishing and formalizing a relationship these companies would have purview. They, they would have access to better understanding that. And we would be working with HR departments to fuse that, to, you know, to, to bridge the gap or uh, to, to create a fusion cell, you know, exactly. to, flatten, to flatten the organization, to, to remove those, all that bureaucracy and the filters. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I know I said a lot there, man, but you know, that's, that's kind of uh, where I, where I see it going and what I'd like to see with fusion cell. And, and how best to help veterans in the future. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I appreciate all of it. Awesome. So let's get into these last handful of questions here. So with this podcast, um, there's like a overarching theme of human performance. So as someone like yourself, who's been a leader, both in business and the military for many years and been around a lot of high performing individuals, what do you think are some of the keys to becoming a high performing just individual in any given field? Um, the keys to becoming a high performing, um, well, we, we, we always hope that, uh, you know, it kind of goes back to that mentorship thing, I guess, you know, I, I kind of look at my mom, how she raised me. She kind of, you know, obviously took on the role as this, the disciplinary and, you know, the, the, she had to be both mother and, and father, so to speak. And, uh, my mom had amazing work ethic. And I, and I guess you probably would have to, to raise two boys and, and kind of do it on your own at a very young age. So sometimes, you know, I'm not going to say we get lucky because I don't entirely believe in luck. Um, you know, I believe in labor under correct, correct knowledge. Somebody told me that one time labor <laughs> under correct knowledge, but, but, you know, sometimes, you know, if you have, you're lucky enough to have good mentors and good upbringing, you know, they, they create good work ethic. And, and you have some strong values, morals, and ethics, which hands down, you know, we teach that today at the, at like leadership courses and SEI, but you know, those, those are things that when I think about the most successful units that I've absolutely been to, those I've like, they were in every single unit. Like there, there was transparency there was, you know, you, you always, we always had to have transparency, you know, uh, frank feedback, you know, almost to the detriment of, yeah, I got, maybe this might hurt your feelings, but you're going to hear some frank feedback, you know, and sometimes, you know, I think that that's a little bit different that I've noticed in the civilian sector, at least for me, I'm not saying it's the same everywhere, but from my personal experience of what I've seen, you know, the military, we're always expecting feedback 
every single time after every single iteration of everything we do. And no matter how it's given to you, everybody just kind of understands that uh, it's always to try to make you better. That's just the way it is. Uh, I think we're a little bit more sensitive in, uh, in the civilian sector on that, you know, and you got to be a little bit more tactful in mm -hmm. uh, how you go about giving uh, frank uh, feedback, but, uh, you know, transparency and the work ethic, you know, so those values, morals, and ethics, I, you know, the most elite units that I've, at least I've had the pleasure of working with, that is exactly how they operate. It's, it's always, you know, professionalism about the work, almost to the detriment sometimes uh, of the family. And I, and I hate to say that, but um, even I, even I sacrificed my family to not let people down at work. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen in the civilian sector. I'm, I'm sure it absolutely does. Um, but it's just an expected thing with these type of tribes, you know, right. you, you, it's a volunteer type of community. You're going to represent yourself with respect. You're going to represent us with respect. And then you're going to represent the military with respect. This is how it's going to work. You know, your brotherhood, the tribe, you know, uh, however you have to balance out your family, that's on you, but don't bring it to work all that, you know, all the time. And, um, you can bring it to work, but make sure it definitely is not overriding what we need you to do at work. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So, Got it. Okay. What does your daily routine look like? Mm. So, so a battle rhythm. So we call that a battle rhythm. Okay. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, a battle rhythm is, you know, just kind of what you asked for like your daily routine, but you know, you know, just to operationalize it and make it sound like more like a warrior type of stuff, we'd call it a battle rhythm. But, uh, you know, so, you talking about when I was in or, or out now? Uh, out now. Yeah. You know, I, 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 uh, I, like I told you before, I'm, I'm still, I'm still having trouble with the, I'm still on that 24 hour clock in my head. So because I'm on a 24 hour uh, clock, I might go to bed early some nights. And a lot of times I'm waking up at two <laughs> and then I'm wired again from about two to four, two to four, <laughs> five o'clock. And I don't know why, maybe it's because I have four kids and, uh, there's, it's just too chaotic sometimes. You know, when we come back from jujitsu, I got to, I got to yeah. close shop with the family, you know, but, um, you know, for the most part, you know, I get up, um, in the morning, I wouldn't say I start relatively early. I definitely don't start as early as I started when I was in the military. You know, um, some assignments, I, you know, just by the, uh, I've never really been a morning person. I know that sounds kind of crazy. I've never really been a morning person. I had to be a morning person because the military wanted me to be a morning person. And so if my boss was in at six and he wanted me to be there at six, or if he wanted me to be there at five, I was there at five. Um, I'm just a responsible person. So whatever time they said to be there, I'd be there. But I'm not like that anymore because I guess, uh, you know, I get up. Uh, you know, I try to get a workout session in at some point throughout the day, sometimes uh, always not in the morning because I just might have a, a couple meetings to go to. And then, um, you know, my kids are homeschooled, so I don't really work out of the house, but I'll try to find, a, you know, I got a couple little key coffee shops I work out of. I go in there, I spend a couple hours, you know, hacking through that, trying to run current operations on the business. And, uh, um, and then I, I try to find some time for, you know, my family 
you know, jujitsu and balancing out some of the things I never got to do and settling down um, because I moved around for 26 years in the military. So, you know, um, things I wanted to do, you know, I right. uh, building a house, building this for my family, cutting wood and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So. Okay. That's great. Yeah. So as is the name of the podcast, the driving force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? Um, my driving force. I, I, I would say that I've always tried to do the best I possibly could, but I remember my mom instilling that and kudos to my mom again, you know, if she ever listens to this thing, cause I'm going to put everything back on my mom. She always told me to try to do whatever I was doing to try to do the best I can. And, um, you know, I might, I might, you know, I might hear, maybe I could sum it up a little bit in an analogy. So in the military, you do what's called WAPS testing. It's okay. kind of a written exam. You kind of do every a couple of years to get promoted. And, you know, they promote you on, on basis of your merit, kind of time and grade, time and service, and how you score on this exam. But a lot of times, you know, if you, if you, if you just make it and you put on the rank, if you do the calculus, it's almost impossible to make the next rank because you don't have enough time in service and time in grade. Okay. okay. You'd have to score so high on the exam that it's almost a futile, it becomes futile to even try because you just won't be able to make it. So every, every couple of years I take that exam and I remember guys used to walk up to me and be like, Tone, didn't you just, um, you just put on this rank like, you're, you're, you're not going to make it, man. You'd have to score really high or, or I'd be talking to them like, Hey, look at, aren't you, um, you're not doing any studying. They're like, well, I can't make it. The point I'm trying to make with this, I didn't really care about making the rank. I cared about what my mom's always taught me, which is always try to do the best you can. Well, the service puts that in front of you. I always thought that was an obligation that they put on you. Like, Hey, look at, you're going to do testing every couple years that's the way the system is. All right. And so if you figured out the calculus real quick, you'd go, wow, there's, I only had this small percentage of making rank, but I didn't really care about making rank. It goes, it went back to always try to do the best I could. So the system was in place to actually test. And so when those, when those times came around in my life, I would always put the time in like my, like my mom taught me, I would always put the time in. And so I'd buckle down and be like, Hey, look at, I reverse engineer that I'm testing on this date. My job is always to try to do the best at anything I do. And you know, five months out, I'm studying like clockwork. I'm taking time away from my, you know, my, my girlfriends or my future wife eventually, you know, and, and subsequently what happened was I ended up making rank, but it was never about making rank. That's how I approached my whole life. My whole life is about doing the best you possibly can. And that's probably why, you know, I, I've got into business today and like, you know, why I shared those points with you in my head, there's nothing I don't think I can do or nothing I don't think we can do as long as you decide that's a priority and, and you're willing to do the work, the work that requires you know, yeah. to be successful. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's so great. I guess my driving force in a sense is, Hey, you know, I like to where opportunities are. I like to capitalize on opportunities. 
I like to position myself in the best position I can be in. So when opportunity, when it presents itself, you're not behind the power curve and you can capitalize on it. And so if you're going to try to live that way, then you always have to be prepared or you should always be like, okay, Hey, I'm always going to be trying to do these things to better myself and always try to do the best you can. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I love that answer. Yeah, it does. Awesome. Then lastly here, before I wrap up, so we have a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and people in business who listen to this podcast that are likely managing, you know, teams and, and a bunch of people. So what parting words of wisdom or advice around just managing teams in general, would you like to leave everyone listening? Um, well, I've always been a believer in when it comes to people, you know, and managing, managing people is, um, you know, obviously you want to get to know your people. Not everybody is, is reacts and is, is, is set up or wired the same. So everybody's completely different. So it behooves anybody out there. If you want to, influence and lead your people the best way you possibly can, then you got to get to know your people. And you truly have to sincerely care about people if, you, you know, which that could be a tough one because, you know, you only have so much time and, and only so much capacity, you know? So like, how do you balance this? Like, hey, do you know, you know these people work for me? Do I know their, the names of their wives? Do I know the names of their kids? Uh, or do you even care? Well, I would argue that if you don't care, then you better sincerely get really good at faking it, you know, and that's my personal <laughs> opinion, because if you don't care about them, then I don't know how you're going to expect people to really care about you, you know, I mean, obviously, they're going to care about the paycheck, but, but if you want them to care about more than the paycheck, and you want them to work really hard, and you want them to be like exponentially doing more than what you're asking them to do, they got to like you. And that's just a, you know, that's a likability type of thing. And that's my personal, uh, that's, you know, you asked me, so I'm giving my opinion on it. Yeah. So if you care, if you care about them and they feel like you genuinely care about them or you genuinely are really good at faking it. And so they feel like you care at them. You're obviously, you'll be able to get them to work better for you, you know? And, um, and if you don't do that, you know, I think it's just going to be a little bit tougher and, and nobody says you have to do that. Um, but man, if you can do it exponentially, they will take on more uh, on their plate and, and they're, they're going to be doing a lot of things you didn't really ask them to do, but is for the betterment of the company or for the betterment of you. So uh, yeah. Um, and I, and I'd always say that, you know, try to be really transparent with people, you know, and be brutally, brutally honest with people you know, um, try to, where I, where I've seen a lot of problems, sometimes people, they, they don't want to mention something or they don't want to hold people accountable, which is in the long run, you're going to have to face it sooner or later. It's just going to bite you. You know, it's basically going to bite you in the ass. So you got, you got to like all those teams I was telling you, I worked with, it seems like they all got to those levels where, being transparent, being honest, being sincere, you know, you know, understand it. Sometimes, it, you know, maybe I don't say it the best, but, but I truly do care about you, you know, when I give you this feedback and it's ultimately because I want to make you better. Yep. And um, that's always the best way to lead and inspire people. So, but if you're, if you're not really, you know, jiggy with, 
having those crucial and critical conversations or they scare you, then make sure somebody's having those conversations with your people. You know, maybe you're not the messenger. It doesn't mean you always have to be the messenger, but somebody needs to um, be addressing those issues and holding people accountable. Um, so, uh, you know, my, 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 my philosophy is always to be, you know, you know, have high integrity, be transparent, you know, hold people accountable, uh, and and hopefully sincerely you you tend to care about your folks you know if you want them to 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 get the most optimal if you want to get the the optimal performance out of them yeah 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 that's great and i appreciate the the candor there i think that's a great place to end too tony thanks again for coming on the show this is great hey chase thanks for having me i really appreciate it thanks for taking the time and uh man Great questions also, man. So thanks for putting me on the spot. And uh, yeah, take care, man. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Uh, where can people go if they want to learn more about SEI and Fusion Cell and, and also maybe like help out and donate to the Pararescue Foundation? Okay. So yeah, so great. Uh, so pararescuefoundation.org, real easy. Just remember the word pararescue and then foundation, you know, slam them together, pararescuefoundation.org. Um, fusion cell, it's one word, fusioncell.com, And you could learn more, uh, just go visit the website right there. And then SEI, Sierra Echo India dash NH, like New Hampshire.com is, uh, yeah, you can punch them up right there, man. Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, chaserosa.com and follow me, follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.